0: Welcome to COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture, the podcast about COVID around the world from a public health policy and cultural perspective. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. In this podcast, you'll hear stories and examples about what's been going on in the lives of people around the world during this historic pandemic time. We share information that is meant to be translatable and understandable to the public with the goal of continuing and improving COVID communications, awareness, and understanding to get this pandemic finally under control. Welcome to episode 43 of COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. Yes, we're at episode number 43 at this time, and we are into our third year dealing with this international pandemic, this health crisis, and today we are commemorating the one million lives lost to COVID in the United States alone, and that took place about three weeks ago, to be honest, in May, and I did not feel ready to discuss this topic on this podcast. It is something that I just feel very heavily And the reason why this podcast started from the very beginning was to continue to provide information about the pandemic, to share what was happening all the way in Asia and Europe so that in the United States, we would hear, and also in New Zealand, to hear about how we can deal with the pandemic, how we can prevent the deaths, how we could flatten the curve, which is something we don't even talk about anymore. So there's a lot of feeling involved here and a lot of frustration over here on this side of this podcast and just someone you know who has a public health background and looking at the data looking at our world and data looking at the cdc knowing the fact that testing has been pretty much you're on your own if you can access the tests right there was a time when people could receive free tests in the mail people are not always getting tested if they don't have health care if they take those tests at home they are not reported Even though COVID is a reportable condition in public health terms, this is something that has to be reported in the healthcare field to the CDC for data reporting purposes so that we can track it and so that we can address it and create programs to stop COVID from continuing to spread. I'm just highly disappointed in the way that Everything has unfolded over the past two and a half years, almost three years now, and it's frustrating. So um, I've had to take some time off from the podcast. I went out of town, visited some relatives, and they were gathering uh, without masks indoors. Everyone has basically gone back to normal in many cases, thinking I live in fear. I live in complete dismay. I live in so much disappointment not fear. I live in disappointment in the fact that we have a million people who have lost their lives because of this pandemic, a very preventable virus from affecting lives. And in the following future episodes, you'll be hearing a lot more about long COVID and MISC been happening with children as a result of COVID and the lack of opportunity for vaccination for kids under five yet. And um, it's a huge mess. And unfortunately, I'm like one of the few people, um, you know, comparatively, uh, there aren't very many of us who understand the severity of what we're experiencing yet. Even though we've been looking at this for over two years, even in the field of public health, there are people who are not masking. There are people with public health degrees who are not taking this as seriously as they could, are working in the field of public health. Another huge issue as we talk about health equity, people who are dealing with this. I mean, it's impacting everybody, but we do see and are aware of disparities regionally uh, in terms of healthcare coverage, access to monoclonal antibodies, and so on. Testing, it's a huge, huge disaster. You know, if you don't want to hear about COVID, I totally understand. Some people tell me They don't understand why I run this podcast. I get it. They don't want to hear about it. It's something that is still continuing to impact our nation. So in this episode, we are speaking with Kristen Urquiza of Marked by COVID. She's visited our podcast a few times in the past. This was um, from a couple months back as we prepared for the 1 million lives lost. And I just haven't been able to put it together to to share this information because it is so... It just really weighs on me, the fact that we're still in this, something that is preventable. And so in this episode, you will be hearing from Kristen Urquiza and hearing about the fact that COVID is a mass disabling event. We're talking about real human beings, real lives who have lost, you know, they've lost loved ones, they've lost family members. She talked about the uh, the flags in Washington, D.C. to represent the million lives lost due to covid as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I really appreciate the work of Marked by COVID that Kristen and her team have been working on tirelessly to build awareness uh, and policy change for COVID. I have recently joined a team with healthcare advocates for California California COVID equity so that we can continue to build awareness and funding for health equity and emergency services, in addition to awareness for health equity during this current pandemic. And I will continue to do my part to build awareness about what's happening from a very conscious and very empathetic, social justice-minded public health perspective. And um, if you're new to the field of public health, um, what we do learn is that's not everybody. Not everyone in public health is dedicated to health equity. Not everyone is fully on board and aware of uh, social justice concerns, health equity and environmental justice. Um, A lot of people are doing this as a job. You're getting a lot of feeling from me today because it is one million lives lost in the United States. I present Kristen Urquiza to share more information about what's been going on was marked by COVID. Let's go ahead and get started with our formal introductions. Sure, happy to do so. So I'm Kristen Urquisa,
1: I'm the co-founder and co-executive director of Marked by COVID, which is a nonprofit focused on uh, remembering this pandemic and what we've lost and who we've lost, but also amplifying the voices of people who've been severely impacted. Um, And ensuring that we memorialize, um, center their voices in the recovery and resistance. And Mark by COVID is a new organization that was born out of the pandemic, was co-founded by myself and my partner, Christine, in the days following the death of my own dad from COVID-19, who was otherwise healthy, 65-year-old guy who, between first cough and last breath was 19 days and this was in june of 2020 when we didn't have vaccines we didn't have many therapeutics and our elected officials were saying oh we're on the other side of this you know it's it's time to get back to work so marked by covid was born to not only ensure that we don't forget those that we've lost but also helping to give uh, a platform to the voices of those left behind, those people who lost a parent or a child, people who have long COVID, folks who are living at the intersection of those issues. We are the collateral damage. We are what happens when you do not prioritize public health yeah. in a public health crisis, whenever it's about this false choice of an economy versus like a strong economy versus strong communities. And we've been growing. And connecting with you throughout this nearly two-year period, and I hate to say, but we are more as relevant now as we were two years ago, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't expecting that, and that's infuriating. We all deserve more in this country. Our standards are so low, and I have more value. My life has value, and I am demanding that that be recognized for all of us that, you know, we shouldn't be forcing people to go to work sick without the proper gear to keep them protected. We should not, you know, be ignoring the fact that a million people in this country have lost their lives from this terrible crisis, like a million people. I've been thinking about this a lot as we, you know, approach this horrific benchmark. And um, we've basically, not really even said anything about those who we've lost since we've passed a half a million. What does that say about who we are as a people?
0: Right? Seriously.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's six million internationally, five million outside of the U.S., a million in the U.S., and then we've also been looking at and kind of tracking the excessive deaths too so for folks who don't know we also have had more excessive deaths over the last 2 years in comparison to other you know parts of our history and That has a lot to do with the fact that people delayed, you know, important treatment for other disease, but it also is folks who most likely died from COVID as well, who never got tested or never had access to that. So Mm -hmm. we've just been living through a mass, mass, mass disabling event, as well as a humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think a lot about is that, you know, we botched our response from the get go. And just because what we're getting now is better than nothing, it still doesn't fit the bill of
0: what's needed for the moment. It's a huge mess. And it's such a huge case study of human denial of mm-hmm. something that is seriously a huge elephant in everyone's living room worldwide. The impact of this is continuing to be seen. Yes, it's still yet to be seen. Um, it's already awful as it is, but
1: yeah. No, I think that. I, I mean, you understand things like you know we we think about things similar from the sort of population level, um, and how you cannot have an individual response to a population level crisis to a public right. health crisis yeah. and. We have from, um, I think, a leadership and government perspective, in particular in the United States, have tried to sell this idea that individualism will get us out of this. And that has really muddied the waters so that I think for some people, it's just easier to stick your head down and say, this isn't really happening. This is all like, the newest chapter of dysfunction in Washington, you know, there's like a bunch of that that comes into play as well. When in fact, like there's a deadly virus, like there's a deadly virus out there that is airborne. It's incredibly transmissible. And if you are under five, if you are unable to get vaccinated for a whole host of legitimate reasons, and or if you are immunocompromised, you are as my grandma would say, S-O-L.
0: Right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, we've met before this even began. This is only a year old. The Public Health Podcast Network is run by BIPOC, uh, women of color, mixed women of color, and it's also uh, disabled enterprise. This is because we are immunocompromised. Because I am immunocompromised as well. And so when Kristen shared her story about her father passing away from COVID, and just the the sheer lack of empathy it seems from politicians and from you know leaders at the top of even public health organizations, I mean, I, I feel it. I mean, I don't have anyone in my immediate family who has from this, but yes, of course, so many have actually had COVID now, right? Um, right. But, you know, just the, the thought of someone being immunocompromised and having to deal with this, we don't have the antibodies to deal with COVID. Perfect. The vaccine, I mean, we don't know. I mean, there's there's so much that's unknown, but it may have some protective factors for us to not spread the virus, mm-hmm. but it doesn't protect us. It right. actually doesn't protect us. We don't have antibodies. We don't develop them because we're on immunosuppressants. And I just don't think people quite understand that yet. I mean, whether or not someone's immunocompromised, the fact that you mentioned that this is a mass disabling event, we know countless stories now, and they're growing, of people with long COVID who are going to very likely develop autoimmune diseases.
1: Yeah. Post-viral illness is, yeah, post-viral illness is not new and for anyone who was born probably like 1990 and before and had the chicken pox the chicken pox is a virus and it makes us susceptible when it's reinvigorated if you will to shingles there my grandma had the shingles I've had several friends who have had shingles it's terrible and I'm so sorry that you've had shingles before (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's a very, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but from what my understanding is like, we don't quite know exactly all the reasons why, but we do know that post-viral illness, you know, acute viral illness go hand in hand. And so for us to be playing basically Russian roulette is how I think about it with our long-term health is going to cause, I mean, like we don't have the infrastructure in place to, provide the care that tens of millions of people living in long COVID need, let alone the access to affordable health care. We don't have the treatments yet. There are millions of people who are suffering in ways that given the nature of the two years of us kind of being separate from one another, having to use technology, I don't think the world quite has witnessed and yet appreciated. And this brings me to the work that we've done around COVID uh, Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. uh, For folks who are just joining us, I um, have been working with our community of bereaved families and sort of our, our network that we've built up through Marked by COVID to push Congress and as well as invite cities and states to recognize the first Monday of March as a official Memorial Day for COVID and part of what is so central to this, part of what's so essential to recognizing this day is to have time and space to, you know, the near term to allow, you know, grieving families, the recognition deserved to really grapple with the type of individual and collective loss and trauma that we've been through. But it's also to really demarcate and put a line in the sand that this was real, that it happened, that it had profound impacts on our lives and in our communities. And I think this is such an important, essential step in building the public health infrastructure that we need to deal with the tail of this crisis as well as prepare for the next because if we decide or we allow as a society to package COVID and the crisis into a cute little box with a bow and put it up on the shelf it's going to go into that memory hole and we're all going to be like okay I guess that wasn't a big deal even though my dad died and I you know like all of that and and just sort of carry on. And I'm, we're like, no, no.
0: Right. And we have a culture in this country of forgetting things, right? We just seem to forget and move on to the next thing. And it's, but also, it also has its disadvantages because we're going to repeat some of the mistakes. You know, we spoke recently to a public health historian for the public health networker and, you know, the parallels with I hate the word. I mean, it's not even an accurate term. With the you know what they called the Spanish flu, oh, yeah. Um, you know, and the way people are responding uh, with the masking and whatever, like the way that you know governments have responded, and the whole the whole story. It's just there's so many parallels. I'm so grateful that you just
1: well one that that you spoke to that historian. And two, that you just brought that up because that is a central driving force to COVID Memorial Day is, is preventing history from repeating itself and really capturing the unvarnished truth of what happened and why. So we don't repeat history again. And like, I don't, you know, I would love to be able to scream from the rooftops that like our experience despite a hundred years of medical advancements, despite being able to bring a vaccine online in a, a number of months, despite having access to like these high quality tests, like all of the human behavior pieces are like exactly the same. Right. And um, between the last pandemic, sometimes called referred to as Spanish flu and this pandemic. And if we do not mark this pandemic and the everything it exposed and everything it took from us. The next pandemic, a, is going to happen in less than a hundred years, is what mm-hmm. all the sources
0: that yeah, is very say. high
1: say, and we're doomed to repeat those same mistakes. Into the you know point that kind of really brings us together in a community is who is destined by systems that we've created to take the biggest hit. And it's, you know, not people, it's not the 1%, it's everybody else, right? It's the folks um, who are already struggling to make ends meet. Um, Our BIPOC communities are chronically disabled, uh, chronically ill and disabled, excuse me, communities. And that's just, that's not the that is not the world that I want to live in. It's not the world that I was sold that I was living in. And in particular to the last, the rhetoric of the last several years of like, oh yeah, we're going to commit ourselves to equity. This mm-hmm. is not an equitable world. And I think that yeah, this moment allows us to really call that out. And that's mm-hmm. something that I feel like with Mark by COVID we're doing, we're trying to do more of is just to really stand in our authentic truth. Um, and and say, listen, like, that's a very beautiful DEIJ statement that you have, We you aren't doing nothing for equity, right? haven't done anything to um, address what's happening in real life around you when it comes to COVID.
0: So tell us what the public health community can do. But even before that, actually, oh, well, let's decide here, because I would love to go into a slightly more um, in-depth conversation about policy. We both have MPAs, is that right? Or something yeah. like that? Yeah. So we both have a public administration background and how policy works and how um, coalitions work and things like that, how we can actually uh, make change uh, through government leadership, public public sector leadership. So there's that. But then also for us to talk about Memorial Day of Remembrance, and maybe that should be our last kind of call to action to just take further steps toward that, that application of policy.
1: Yeah, I'd love to like get into the policy, you know, nitty gritty and thinking about, um, you know, public health professionals in particular. I've um, over the course of the last several months have been connecting um, with increasingly numbers of public health professionals who um, are in, you know, institutions that are disappointed with sort of the head of their institutions silence Or, um, you know, worse, sort of like enabling a bad public health policy. And I think, you know, it's, I really admire uh, folks first and foremost to find the courage to um, speak up in Mm -hmm. ways that Mm -hmm. may be a little bit uncomfortable and um, may be a little bit more than uncomfortable as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first sort of facilitating priority for people who care about this is to like start like in your staff meetings, like in, you know, conversations, call out bad policy (laughs) and call it out and, and approach your leadership to ask the hard question, but like with curiosity of like, why are you promoting this? We know from the data and we know from, historical context of the last two months that this is going to result in X. Um, the second thing that we talk a lot about that's a little bit more like policy prescription for this moment of here and now is that we need to, on the whole <laughs> mitigation front, we need a host of, of sort of implementation mm-hmm. to happen mm-hmm. really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we. We should have a goal that by back to school 2022, so September of this year, that every single school's ventilation systems are top of the line upgraded so that not only for this, but for you know flu season and other sort of ways in which those little germ factories and germ individuals <laughs> spread, that we are uh, really committing to uh, providing public air spaces that are as clean as possible. And you know, we can create policy that is supports um, that sort of infrastructure advancement that has a public health lens to it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, you know what we're doing right now is cutting funding for testing and masking. Um, while there's another surge unfortunately on the horizon most likely happening with this new uh variant of mm-hmm. subvariant.
0: variant mm-hmm.
1: and what we you know should be doing instead is mailing a continuous and ample supply of testing um of tests to people um especially people who are 200 percent and you know above and below the poverty level and Mm -hmm. helping to train people on how to know their status um, and providing the tools and resources to make that happen. We should be ensuring that um, every non-remote worker has access to paid time off for a positive test and um, has job security so that they are not you know, replaced um, if and when they've been exposed and have to take time off. These are all simple mitigation measures within our control that will continue to rein in um, our exposure, our number of cases, which will in turn save people's lives as well as prevent people from getting long COVID. I don't see anything more important than dealing with that reality versus trying to pretend that this is over.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, I like that you mentioned several policy needs that need to take place. I think you know, when, when I first think about it, kind of without my policy hat or without my public administration hat, I just think Hmm, you know, maybe we just need one or two policies changed. But no, I think there's like 20. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> and like, you know, I've like even boiled down my like entire dream list of policies. So like there's if there's not like one or two, but if we did like five or six like really well, mm-hmm. it would make a whole like host of difference mm-hmm. in how this pandemic is um, ha- continues to play out, and you know, looking at the numbers from this Omicron wave, um, Hispanics, Latinx folks were twice as likely to get infected, and mm-hmm. the white folks. And mm-hmm. like, I look at those numbers, and I am like, that's because we, by and large, are in our ha- harm's way at higher percentages because we work non-remote jobs or at the grocery stores and the fields and um, we have a, so many tools in our toolbox to protect workers and we're not doing that mm-hmm. and and we're not um, you know this is less of a policy prescription this is more of a cultural prescription we're not sharing their stories mm-hmm. we are not hearing them We are not allowing ourselves to make that human empathetic connection of what it's like to be afraid of losing your job Mm -hmm. and like getting evicted. And you're having to make that impossible decision knowing that you could contract COVID and be like out of work long-term if you have long COVID. And Mm -hmm. I recently connected with a worker in Massachusetts who was at our vigil, uh, Juan Pablo. And I mean, hearing his story and how two years later he's still struggling and can't work full time. And just, it broke me in a way that I um, forgot that I could still be broken. Like despite everything that I've gone through, like my, I still get broken in really intense ways because I feel, I just, I, I allow myself to connect with people. And I, I think we need to, like, we need to create policy that brings back the human experience. And that's part of the equity work, right? Where it's centering the needs, centering the stories mm-hmm. of people who are most impacted.
0: Right, and those external factors that, and those systemic factors that are leading and causing these uh, inequities. So, you know, I think in our past conversations, we, may have touched a little bit about you know people of color minorities how they're affected disproportionately um but yeah i mean i I think it's so important that we continue to share that conversation of health equity you know we are both latinas i'm a i'm a hidden latina (laughs) happen to have the asian mom gene (laughs) showing up everywhere i go but um i am also mexican-american and my that side of the family is where we did see the deaths. Um, And, you know, also when we go over here to Barrio Logan, uh, there is a supermarket here in San Diego. um, And the feeling of grief and missing people was heavy in that store. Mm -hmm. Um, I last went about a year ago. I, I don't go back in there anymore, but there was a feeling of death in that supermarket of missing staff. And there was a heaviness and you could feel that community um, impact of this. And we're not sharing those stories enough. We're not talking about, you know, what this has been like here, you know, in California, it does, we have a lot of Latinx and we are seeing, you know, we've got the farm workers, we've got um, a lot of service workers, people who do the cleaning, uh, people who work with a lot of, you know, Dirt and germs, you know, and they have disproportionately died and been impacted by this. I did a labor report um, for somebody and the analysis if you were to look at the Department of Labor population and the workforce uh, for the first time in 10 years, the Latinx population has dropped in the workforce.
1: And, you know, these like pandemic ripple effects, if you will, we're going to continue to discover, and these are all matter. And like what I, we have to start from the fact of that, like that, what we lost, who we lost and how that is foundational to our communities, to uh, each other, um, how people are in deep grief and how so many of our rituals around mourning were taken away from us given the nature of this pandemic people didn't get to say goodbye I didn't get to say I didn't get to be with my dad when he died I'm an only Mm -hmm. child and like the thing I remember thinking about while he what like when he was actively dying and like afterward was how my grandma his mother and his father who had passed in the last 10 years every single one of my aunts and uncles so there there were six of them plus all of my cousins were all in the hospital in the hospital room together holding vigil saying prayer um you know crying laugh, you know tears of joy to be together but tears Mm -hmm. of sorrow like just Mm -hmm. that whole Mm-hmm. experience like that is culturally it's, right. in particular for Mexican Americans essential and my dad like he died to the sound of machines beeping mm-hmm. and a stranger thank God she was there the nurse mm-hmm. um holding his hand and I that that has like short functioned me in a way that has changed me in a way that I will never, be the same let alone like we didn't get to have a you know proper funeral like all of these rituals that are part that are there for a reason mm-hmm. they help us grieve they help us process grief needs to be witnessed too in order for it to be processed so we've been suffering in isolation and like i'm i am feeling more and more comfortable just saying and being honest that like i'm not okay like i am a very high functioning not okay but this experience has fundamentally changed me and I am not okay. And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pretend like I'm okay any longer. And that Mm -hmm. is that burden that is being felt.
0: feel like you're on your own with it.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, going back to the, the equity frame is, you know, that is happening to a disproportionate amount of black families, indigenous families, Latinx families, like it, people who live, um, in poverty, like this, this pandemic is, Mm -hmm. is, you know, impacting. And it's just like, is that the kind of people type kind of country we want to be that we shove everything down to people who are already struggling? Like, that's like, you know, thinking back, like if we're supposed to be like this separate, but still like believe in
0: God and like Christian values, Let's talk a little bit more about these policy needs that need to happen in the field of public health. You know, public health is everybody. I don't believe that you have to have a degree in public health to be an advocate for public health. We all live here. We all deal with the same environment. We all live with those social determinants of health, as we call them. You know, I think number one is, you know, health equity, addressing what's going on. Um, I love that you mentioned that kind of a qualitative piece, which I'm a big fan of qualitative research continues to be under debate. So statistics and I have always had a contentious relationship. And the more (laughs) I learn about statistics, the more I see why. But anyways, that's a tangent. The real stories of people and the real experiences, health equity and making sure that policy implements, you know, the actual implementation, like we learn, right, is the hardest part. You can create, sign a bill, you know, you can have, you know, Trump sit at the desk and sign whatever he wants or you can have, you know, Biden sign things as well. But point is, if you're not implementing what you said you're going to do, which happens all the time, um, it doesn't really matter. The change doesn't happen. What are your suggestions in policy? Well, I
1: think first of all, we need to have somebody who has a background and expertise in equity calling the shots. We need somebody who's actually, their job, first and foremost, is public health, not medical. And I think people use or don't know that like doctors are great, but doctors are, are, it's different than public health. And, or you could also be public health and have a public policy, all of these sort of permutations fine, but you need to have public health first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that comes first to mind, you know, second of all, when we're thinking about um, health equity, we need to be thinking about just the data that we are, are 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 taking into account like there's no consistent way in which we're collecting data to even start to understand the at the level that we need to to be able to resource there's a whole sort of movement of reinvigorated data collection that helps expand our understanding as it re, we as it relates to equity that we could easily update right away to start to address, um, health inequity from sort of a longer term, um, solution. And then, you know, bringing it back to the pandemic, we need to have a whole host of mitigation measures that are non-pharmaceutical interventions. Mm -hmm. So, masking, testing, ventilation,
0: ventilation, Uh, ventilation,
1: ventilation. Exactly. Um, That helps keep our air clean. And then whenever uh, we're in congregate settings with strangers, that there is a norm around masking with a high quality N95 type mask and that uh, people have access to that, like, you know, without worrying about how much it's going to cost or be price gouged on it. The other thing that we need, so that's sort of just focused on on COVID, but I also, you know, I think a lot about, we spoke about this earlier, like policies around, on the implementation side, public education piece in which, you know, people don't know how to properly fit test a mask. People don't know properly how to... You know, take a test. And we need to be really investing in trusted community members to help bring those trainings and teachings to the table. I was actually just talking to Christine earlier today about remembering being in my 20s and bars in Boston and how I was approached by people selling promoting cigarettes and people sub- promoting different types of liquor for like free trials. And it's like, why weren't there people in there like telling me how to use a condom, you know, like that's a public health and that's a great venue of which to like talk about how to keep yourself safe. And so thinking about what are these different harm reduction, public education models to start to build trust in communities and spokespeople from the community to start that dialogue. So maybe like I was, you know, not have necessarily taken the condom then but if i would have been like oh that community health center in boston they seem to care about me and i feel like i can go there for an sti test you know is it's just like it starts to really build that community infrastructure and what i see now happening is just sort of this like piecemeal approach in which we sort of want to be able to like check a box and move on but if we really want to live breathe equity, it's more than just putting people in office who look like me. It's centering the needs of our community as the number one priority. It costs money, but it pays off in spades. It'll have impacts on health, uh, heart disease, diabetes. It'll have all of these other positive impacts for long-term health. But it also, I think the thing that is most, doesn't have a price tag, but is the hardest thing to climb is that it takes admitting that we haven't quite gotten it right yet. And this administration, I think in particular, is really stubborn and does it and wants to be this leader in equity and has, you know, done things that other administrations haven't done before. And and that's a step in the right direction, but we still need more. We just still, we just need more. Our communities deserve more and individually every single one of us deserves more.
0: I appreciate that you know little every so often I see a commercial about the vaccine and about testing in Spanish every so often not Mm -hmm. not frequently but we do see a few of these efforts and there needs to be more of this there needs to be more education in different languages and investment in diverse communities i think that's a huge one and then again the ventilation aspect. and you know i'm hearing various things on twitter and wherever that um, maybe it's just a huge funding infrastructure huge mess that would take so much investment that people are just afraid to even talk about it whatever we can do put the little box you know the cr box uh, Mm -hmm. it's like a hundred dollars to put one together have that in a classroom have that in you know indoor spaces and just make sure people understand that this is airborne.
1: Yeah, it makes, I mean, I mean, and we've re- resisted that for a long time admitting that COVID is airborne. Mm-hmm. And it, it brings me so much caution because if we're downplaying this, I would be the first person to not downplay COVID because I lost my dad to this virus. But like there could be a much more, dangerous virus that comes onto the scene than what we have here. Like it 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 could be in our water, you know, like transmissible through water. It could be all of these things. We have to have a robust public health infrastructure to ensure that people are protected. And I think that we don't teach that history of public health and how
0: I didn't know what public health was.
1: Right. It was (laughs) like the greatest advancements of in the US is like figuring out public water and getting rid of like cholera and all these like waterborne diseases in which we were able to see such a boon to public health and individuals starting to be able to live longer lives and what's happened over the course of the last two years we've lost two years of progress on Mm -hmm. life expectancy
0: things have gone backwards right exactly we've seen actually yeah lowered life oh, expectancy, years. and also the reduction in the workforce. And, you know, with the Latinx community, that like, population drop in the workforce. That should scare the bejesus out of all of us. You know, I haven't seen it, but there's supposed to be a documentary called The Day Without a Mexican. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I've heard
1: of it. I have never seen it. General idea. But yeah, I mean, I would love to be able to organize, you know, a universal week of not showing up and like the entire economy would crash yeah. yeah I mean
0: no one would pick your crops no one could do that for you you couldn't such be a, any like whatever be able to an go hour. To your job
1: because you wouldn't have a nanny like it, you know your house would be a mess like there's just all of no me in the kitchens of California cooking your food totally it would it wouldn't it would be chaos and um, I think that's you know it, it I'm thinking of Paul Farmer right now, Mm -hmm. Um, tragically recently passed away. And there has been some resurrection of some of the things that, you know, smart things that he said, resonant things that he said over the course of his life. And one of the things that really resonated with me is like part of the fundamental problem. And I'm going to botch this up, but I'll get the idea out. The problem is that we value different lives differently. So this all comes back to the race thing where Mm -hmm. it's like, my dad, my Mexican dad was expendable to the government. And that's something that I've had to wrestle with. It's something my mom has had to wrestle with. And um, that's why I'm not okay. I'm never gonna be okay because things that I suspected were in this pandemic. Yeah, when somebody tells you who they are, listen to them. Remember right. that lesson? And the government has basically said our priority is not public health, which doesn't mean that like I'm gonna go and hide underneath my covers all day, every day, though I do the, do that on occasion. It just means that when I emerge, I'm going to, I'm going to rage against the machine.
0: So tell us more about COVID Memorial Day and what we can do, what's happening and how we yeah. can do Yeah. Um, so back to COVID Memorial Day. Um, mm-hmm.
1: This is, this is important to all of us. You care about public health, you care about COVID Memorial Day, because it will be the thing that helps put that line in the sand about this being a big deal. And um, we've been organizing to get uh, Congress to uh, recognize it. We have a bill in the House and the Senate, which is gaining momentum. I think we have over 60 co-signers on the House side and 17 on the Senate side. We have a, so that's exciting. Um, we, it we be calling for the first Monday of March to be observed as covid Memorial Day, so it help kind of set the tone for the month of March, uh, which is the time when you know everything changed for us um, in 2020. Mm-hmm. And um, for folks who wanna get involved, um, I highly recommend going to covidmemorialday.org. It's a website just for COVID Memorial Day. There's a button that says take action. There's a variety of ways in which you can get involved, come to one of our meetings that are on Thursdays at 4.30 send a letter to your elected official. There's a form, makes it really easy. Volunteer do do more. Um, there's a lot of exciting activity um, that we are, you know, good trouble that we're up to. And, you know, we, we as a community of folks who've lost loved ones, folks who have long COVID, people are just angry that this, that we're in this situation. We have a, a, a growing little, growing cadre of public health professionals who are just fed up uh, and mostly women and women of color who are fed up of of just the situation that we're in and are working together in community to raise our voices. And it's kind of like the most inspiring thing I've ever been a part of, (laughs) to be honest with you.
0: I love that. And you know, that's why we started this network. I don't know if people know that, but COVID was a leading reason why the Public Health Podcast Network began. Because we were able to, I am not an agency employee. I don't have to worry about losing my job. The kind of racist climate I was already working in, in one public health agency, got me to a point of relapse and diagnosis of my autoimmune disease. I am immunocompromised because of the toxic stress I I went through in a public health job. I don't work for public health agencies. And so we can, we have the power to give voice to what's going on. And when public health does wrong, when public health wrongs us, um, we can actually speak about that. And so COVID is a huge example of a administrative public health failure. Unfortunately it is. And if I speak to my, a lot of my public health colleagues, they're afraid to address COVID. They don't want to talk about it the other day, but someone who works in an agency, I don't know if they're going into the office sick, but someone I know um, has second time been infected. And in my, these are public health professionals. There's, there's no, there's no reason why this should be happening.
1: Mm-hmm. And- yeah. What you're saying is so important to like Pause on for a moment. It's like so many public health professionals out there are angry.
0: I'm meeting people who are complacent. Um, Complacent. I'm meeting a lot. Oh, there's a lot of health conferences that people are sitting. I uh, just the other day, there's conferences where people are in there unmasked.
1: Oh, that's bizarre.
0: In health conferences.
1: But for the folks out there who are angry, you are not alone. (laughs) And I
0: want to meet you that those who care, I want to meet you.
1: And if you are like part of the thing and are like, why are we sitting in this room? And most people are unmasked. And I don't feel like I feel like I'm being gaslit. It's because you are and you're not alone. So come work with
0: us. Come Mm -hmm. explore the possibilities with
1: standing up for what you believe in.
0: Definitely. And, you know, we're here to support you as well and continue to connect with you and the work you're doing. Also with your public health colleagues started our own uh, PHA3C, the Public Health Advocacy Coalition for Controlling COVID, PHA3C. And that's what we have here in the public health network for professionals who do have a conscience when it comes to major mass disabling events, such as what we're living through right now. Share with us your contact information, social media links. How can people get involved and get started to work together with you?
1: Great question. Um, We are on all the social media channels at Marked by COVID. So M-A-R-K-E-D by COVID. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me at I-N-F-O at MarkedByCovid.com. Uh, We answer every single email that comes in um, and have a team working with us volunteering to help ensure people have access to information and opportunities to collaborate. And then, uh, like I just said, our COVID Memorial Day website is covidmemorialday.org. And then Marked by COVID can be found at markedbycovid.com. So lots of ways to connect and yeah, take that first step. Do something reach out you know follow us on our social media channels amplify things that resonate with you and that's how this all gets started is is taking that first step
0: yeah let's see some real change here in the climate and the way people are responding to this covid crisis I just feel that so many more people are vocal against wearing a mask there's just so much more vocal uh, representation of people who really don't get it
1: yeah I mean I think the other thing too to remember, Is part of what is part of what a small sort of loud, loud subsection of society is like been funding the anti maskers like really, really well. Give them something to be um, mad about. So, one thing, so just to be kind of clear on that, it's we are up against some well funded folks, but I I think that people of reason, I still believe we're a majority.
0: I hope you're right. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us today and continuing to talk about the importance of health equity even in what's going on. Public health, anything, marketing, business, all of these things, like we say, depends on the person's individual story. The power of the story matters so much. And so I really value the work that you're doing. I think it's very important that you continue to share your voice, share your experience, your story, and also share the stories of people who have lost loved ones from COVID. Um, and then again, long COVID is still a growing and emerging issue. And just not forget about that.
1: Not at all. Yeah, are too many of us um, already have long COVID. And if we do not take this virus seriously, so many more of us
0: will. So
1: thank you so much for having me on again. And I look forward to the next time we connect.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We are one of four official podcasts of the Public Health Podcast Network. And to learn more about us and to visit our other podcasts, visit publichealthpodcasters.com.